If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus and chapter 32. Exodus and chapter 32. If you're in a scripture journal, that'll be on page 150. 150. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 in our time together um, as we uh, get to kind of the concluding uh, time in our uh, Exodus series. We've been taking kind of large chunks the last couple of weeks. We're going to slow down a little bit in the next couple of weeks. Um, but God willing, we'll be beginning our study through the Gospel of Luke in mid-November. And so uh, if Scripture Journal is something that's been helpful for you, uh, you can go ahead and reserve one now, or as many as you want. Uh, there'll be four bucks each. Just put that in the, the player come by the office or in the mailbox that's right out here uh, to reserve yours. But for today, we're going to be in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation. You can follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this. Uh, together. Exodus 32, starting in verse 1, God's word says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took the, off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with graving tool, made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down to your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a sniff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. If you know the name Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you likely know that name too to his creation of the great fictional detective Sherlock Holmes and his uh, many crime-solving adventure with par partner Dr. John Watson. But what you may not know is that Doyle wrote several other non-Sherlock Holmes works, including being the first to write a story that depicted a mummy as a sinister and dangerous creature in a short story entitled Lot Number 249. In fact, much of the mummy-related media over the last hundred years, including several recent film series, 
owe Doyle a great debt for, in some ways, setting the stage for these supernatural thrillers based on these mummies. In the story, lot number 249, Doyle tells of a young man, his name is Abercrombie Smith, and he's a medical student at Oxford. And he lives uh, next door to a fellow named Edward Bellington, who has an obsession with Egyptology, and he even owns many Egyptian relics, including a mummy that he purchased at auction. Over the next few weeks, Smith hears mumbling and muttering from Bellington's room when Bellington isn't even there. A few days after this, a rival of Bellington is attacked by a strange figure that can only be described as inhuman. Later, Smith passes Bellington's room where he sees the mummy seemingly disappear and reappear. Then, another rival of Bellington is attacked from behind and thrown into the water by a mysterious figure. After a dust-up with Bellington, Smith confronts Bellington and accuses him of being behind the attacks, which, of course, he denies. Well, the next thing you know, Smith is in a park, and guess what's chasing him? A mummy begins to pursue him, and he flees and only narrowly escapes. And in the end, Smith forces Bellington to burn all his Egyptian artifacts, including this mummy, at gunpoint. Well, the last sentence of the story is significant. I want you to listen to what he says. Doyle writes, The wisdom of men is small, and the way of nature are strange, and who shall put a bond to the dark things which may be found by those who seek for them? I imagine if one were to read Doyle's story in 1890s when it was written themselves or to their children, maybe before bed, they'd have to offer some reassurances before the lights went out, don't you think? Mummies are dead. Mummies are real, but they're not alive. They can't hurt you. They will not come to life and chase you. Mummies can't chase people, right? Or can they? The story before you is surely familiar to you. The people of Israel, in the midst of God giving the instructions to Moses regarding his plan to dwell in their midst, they rebel. They make the golden calf. They dance and offer sacrifices. But why? You know, in Acts 7, when Stephen is giving one of the greatest sermons of all time before cruelly being martyred, he brilliantly traces redemption history. And he says of this story, in Exodus 32, this. He says, Our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Stephen says that when Israel turned to idolatry, they were trying to become Egyptian again. They were trying to reclaim what they had in Egypt before God whisked them out. And this should hardly surprise anyone who has made it thus far in Exodus, right? The impulse has been there all along, right? When the Israelites were thirsty, they said, we remember when Pharaoh would give us refreshing waters to drink, have you brought us out here to kill us with thirst? When they were hungry, they said, Pharaoh used to give us good full food to the full. But you have brought us out here to die of hunger. And now when Moses is gone for longer than they want, they say in effect, Pharaoh used to give us gods that we could see and touch and control. We need that again. Israel is, in some sense, still being chased by the mummy. They are longing for return to the power of Egypt. And if we're not careful, so will we. As we drop into Exodus 32, this is the setting. 
Moses has been on the mountain meeting with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And why? Because God loves this people. He wants to be with them. He's determined to recreate and restore some of what was lost in Eden. He wants to dwell with them and so provides instructions on how that could be so. He is inviting Israel to dwell with him and be part of what he's doing in the world. And it is as God is finishing giving these instructions to Israel's mediator that they engage in what we see in chapter 32. It is at the tail end of them receiving the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant and the Tabernacle Instructions that they rebel against the Lord. What they are doing is akin to a wife cheating on her husband on her wedding night. Israel's entered a marriage with her gracious and loving and pursuing husband Yahweh and right after they covenant with him. A few hours after putting the ring on her finger, as it were, she commits spiritual adultery. It's an outrageous violation, as we will see. But we need not get self-righteous, friends, for the sinful longing to go back resides in our hearts too. The spirit of the mummy chases us all. But as we will see, you can't serve both God and mummy. You can't serve both God and idols. So in our time together, let's consider two main points from this text, and it lends itself quite easily to this division. Our first point will come from verses 1 through 6, and our second will come from 7 through 14. So point number one, the draw of idolatry. The draw of idolatry. So Moses is up on Sinai, meeting with the Lord, and he must have known that this was going to take a long time, right? Because in 2414, he put Aaron and her in charge in some respects. And even so, in verse 1, it says that the people begin to panic. They're wondering where Moses was. But they should know, right? He's up on Sinai. They could look, you'll see the madness more and more as we go. All they have to do is do what? Look up. On the mountain to see the cloud of the glory of the Lord. But they think this is taking too long. It's certainly it's taking a lot longer than any previous ascent from Moses. And hey, maybe Moses is dead. <coughs> Forty days and they've had enough. So we're told they go to Aaron, they gather themselves to him. In other words, they gather themselves against Aaron to pressure him into helping them return to idolatry. And this, of course, does not alleviate Aaron from responsibility. He chooses to give in to the mob rather than standing for what God commanded. Whether that was, says Douglas Stewart, due to fear of his own popularity or well-being or acceptance, we don't know. So the people say, up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. Now, we can miss this in English, but even when they say Moses, this Moses, they're speaking in derision. They've turned against him. It's like how we might refer to someone as this guy. You ever say that? Can you believe this guy? Right? Or somebody does something, you say, this guy. That's what they're saying. They say, we don't know what happened to this guy, Moses, so make us gods that will go before us. So not only... Do Israel's actions repudiate the Lord as Redeemer in the past? But she also looks to the calf as Redeemer for the future. What they want is something they could see and touch. They want what they had in Egypt. They want gods they can look at 
And since God is not providing that and they can't even see his representative Moses, they panic. Who will lead us to the promised land then? Who will protect us from attacking armies? They want reassurance and safety in a handcrafted God. Dwayne Garrett in his commentary says their desire for an idol is based on a pagan sense that the image is reassurance of divine presence. Absent the image, the people are in dread that they have no supernatural protection. So Aaron instructs them to take their gold, give it to him. He constructs this idol with golden calf for them. And now there's two questions we can ask here. Where did they get the gold? And why a calf? <laughs> right? That's not, not, that, is that something that you would choose? Right? Not unless you're like a University of Texas fan, right? Not, you're dan- not dancing around a calf. So to the first, they got the gold from the Egyptians who handed, do you remember? They just handed over this plunder just as God said they would. And what makes this sin even more egregious is that this plunder was to be used for the construction of the tabernacle. But now they waste it on a god of their own design. So it isn't just that the wife committed adultery on her wedding night. It's like she sold her wedding ring to pay for the room. But why a calf? Well, a young bull, which is what this was, was a god in Egypt. Because Egyptians thought a vigorous young bull was an appropriate way to represent a powerful god. In other words, the people were so attached to the culture of Egypt that they could justify in their minds this false religion, even to the point that they used... Uh, their imagery of Egypt to create a god, a god, we might add, that was shown, I'm telling you, it's madness the more we get into this, they were shown to be impotent and false over and over and over again by Yahweh's mighty action through the strikes and plagues against Egypt. In fact, listen to what 12.12 says. God said, for I will go through the land of Egypt, this is right before Passover, on that night and will strike down the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Listen, And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. It's like the more you get into the story, the more ludicrous it is. The people saw God prove all Egyptians' deities were false. They saw it with their eyes. They they saw him keep his promises over and over again. They saw him come through. They saw his might. They just look up on the top of the mountain and see the cloud of his glory. And what do they do? They panic. They lose faith. They become impatient and they construct a golden bull who they think will protect them on the way to the promised land. I think it's fair to say that idolatry is dumb. You think that's fair? (laughs) It's dumb and it makes people dumb. But don't you see the allure to idolatry? The allure resides in impatience and doubt. It, It casts doubt on God's promises and God's timing. It's to say, God, you aren't acting quickly enough or in the way I want you to, so I will take matters into my own hands and put my trust in other things. Further, the allure is that an idol can't make any demands, can it? Idols can be shaped and formed and fashioned in whatever way we see fit. Isn't that true? A God like Yahweh, too mighty to be defined and too transcendent to be subject to the whims of humans. An idol, however... Make it however you want. 
Shape it and fashion it according to what you think a God should be and what it should demand, which, surprise, surprise, if we had our choice, is nothing at all. Israel makes a bovine because that's what they were used to. That's what they liked. That's what reminded them of their home in Egypt. But the problem lies under this is that they still long for home, but they misidentify what home should be. They still think Egypt is home when God was supposed to be their home, wherever he happened to be or lead them. But idols draw us in, and they appeal to fickle human eyes because we could pick and choose what they look like and what they ask for. We could turn them this way and that, and we could have them face away from us so they won't see what we're up to and they'll be none the wiser. Plus, they don't speak, right? So they can't tell us anything. R.C. Sproul said this, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. An idol is convenient, it's not demanding, it doesn't expect anything, but ironically, it requires everything. We just typically don't realize that until it's too late. We think we're free, but we're enslaved. We just love the chains. I think it's prudent to ask the question, what is an idol? What is an idol anyway? We could think of an idol as something like we see here, right? A literal statue that the ancients literally bowed down to or the type of thing maybe people in remote villages around the world today do. But we enlightened Western moderns, surely we've moved past such things, right? We don't literally bow down to literal figurines made of wood and stone, do we? Well, not so fast. We must not think that we are somehow beyond the pull of idolatry. It's still present, it's just more subtle. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul quotes Exodus 32.6, and I want you to listen to what he says. He says, now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instructions on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Friend, we no less face the temptations that Israel did and the Corinthians did. Nothing is new under the sun. This text is instructive for us because it calls us to examine our lives and our hearts and our motives and tear down our idols, not put Christ to the test. So what is an idol exactly? Tim Keller has the best definition I've seen of what the spirit of idolatry in the Bible is. I want you to listen to what he says. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you could spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It could be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. 
It could be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll have significance and security. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. Do you see? Literally anything can be an idol. And even if we don't physically bow down to it and dance around it, we can still functionally bow and dance before it. We need to understand and see how insidious idolatry is. We must not delude ourselves into thinking that we are not susceptible to it or that there is nothing in our lives that is either near that point or has already crossed that line. Too much is at stake for us to lie to ourselves about the dangers of idolatry. And we see, we have to see that idols are things that could be good things. But we've made them ultimate things. Nothing listed in Keller's definition is itself bad. But when it captures our hearts and mind and time the way only God should, then it is an idol, no matter how you want to slice it. You know, in the Lord of the Rings books and movies, the central item, you know, even if you haven't seen it or read the books, is the Dark Lord Surian's ring of power, right? The ring corrupts anyone who wears it, no matter how good their intentions are. It takes their heart's greatest desire and magnifies it. This is how Keller explains it. The ring makes the wearer willing to do anything to achieve their goals, anything at all. It turns the good thing into an absolute that overturns every other allegiance or value. The wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it, for an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it, and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others, and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols, idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil in Tolkien's novel and real life. This is how insidious idolatry is. Good things get turned into ultimate things. And they could even begin with the best of intentions or even cloaked in the language of piety. Did you notice that? You notice what the people say and Aaron say in verses 4 through 6? They say, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. Then Aaron says, look at your Bible. Look at what Aaron says. Tomorrow we will feast what? To the Lord. And you see that word Lord is in all caps, which translators are trying to tell you this is the word Yahweh. So not only have they made this idol in their impatience and desire to return to the religion of Egypt, but they use the title of Yahweh for it. It's important to see what they're doing. They believe, they believe that what they're doing is okay in their minds. The making of the idol is not turning from Yahweh. They think they're honoring God by wedding their idolatry with Yahweh worship, which is why we see in verse 6 that they use the means of worship that God gave them to honor this idol. 
The people, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. They sit down and they feast and they rose up to play. They took things that God gave them to worship him and they used them for their own perverted means. They cloaked their idolatry in piety. But that didn't make it any less egregious. But the fact that the deed is not driven by the most wicked motive does not lessen the seriousness of either the sin or its results. We might compare Israel's use of God's given means of worship and using them for this idol to carnival mirrors. Do you know carnival mirrors? Funhouse mirrors? What do they do? They distort reality. They misrepresent what is real. Israel is taking good things meant to honor God and distorting them like a funhouse mirror, which causes the worship to not be true worship, but a despicable parody. And that's the thing about idolatry. It rarely presents itself as such. Right? Like, who gets up in the morning and says, you know what I'm going to do today? Be an idol worshiper. Who does that? Any of y'all do that? Nobody does it. It never presents itself that way. Few people set out to be idolaters. They start with good intentions. They can even cloak it in religious language or structures or systems, and then the means become the ends. Garrett Dwayne Garrett in his commentary says, apostasy rarely presents itself as apostasy. The various ways that the church strays from simple fidelity to the gospel never advertises itself as a turning aside from the faith. We could take things in the church, like music, or programs, or Sunday schools, or groups, or even things like grace and mercy or the cross, and we could abstract them from Christ's person and even turn those things meant to point to Jesus and make them things we focus on or even worship. All good things, right? But when they become ends and not means, they could easily become idols, no matter how good our intentions are. You also have noticed this. In verse 6, the people rose up to play. What does that mean? Rose up to play is an idiom for sexual immorality. What this specifically entails, nobody, it doesn't say. But we know that idol worship is more often than not tied to sexual immorality. All throughout the Old Testament and into the New, and come on, it remains, yes, one of the supreme deities of our day. Isn't that true? What does this remind us? It reminds us that where your theology is off, your morality, your ethics, and your behavior are going to be off too. True worship and true theology goes directly with godly living. Whatever your theology is, that will profoundly affect how you live day to day. If your theology is askewed like Israel's theology was askewed, your ethics will be askew also. We can't think that theology is just a heady topic for stuffy academics to debate in coffee shops separated from daily life. Everyone has a theology. Do you know that? Everyone has a theology. The only question is, does it align with the whole counsel of God or not? The Bible seems to think that what one believes with their head and heart flows out to how they live ethically in every avenue of their life. Your deeds, your words, your affections will reflect what you think about God and what he requires in light of his grace. Loose, loose ethics... A loose tongue 
careless thoughts, all speak directly to what we believe about God, Christ, the Spirit, and salvation. This is why, let me give you one example. Paul and Titus 2, fresh off talking about people who profess to know God but deny him with their works, says that Titus must teach what accords with sound doctrine. He says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives in the present age. He ties theology with living because they're inseparably linked. Israel's wonky theology of God spilled over into wonky and ungodly living. So it will be for us. Which is why we must be diligent to have sound doctrine, and this will inform how we live. And we must recognize potential or even current idols in our lives and expose them. And go to the Word of God and see that God is everything we need and more, which will help us be patient and tear down our idols while trusting in His sovereignty and His goodness. Okay, so what is Moses up to when all of this is going on? And could there possibly be any good news in the midst of all this bad news? Like, let's be honest here, okay? 32, 1 through 6, are the darkest verses we've encountered in our study of Exodus. Is that fair to say? In the midst of God's plan to recreate, to regain some of what was lost in Eden, it would seem that Israel is just repeating what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3, which they are. So is there anything good here? Yes, and that leads us to point number two, which is hope for idolaters, hope for idolaters. Moses is completely unaware of any of this. And uh, he's meeting with Yahweh on Sinai, okay? So God informs Moses in verse 7. Now, I want you to notice this language. He says, go down for your people, do you notice that? Whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God says, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. God is distancing himself from the people and their deeds. And interesting enough, what does is what is Moses do in verse 11? Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against what? Your people, <laughs> whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, right? So both God and Moses are like, they're, they're your people. It's like when I see Augie climbing on top of something he shouldn't be on or doing wind sprints on the couch or grabbing a Capri Sun and just squeezing the best out of it while he looks me in the face and juice shoots all over the place or when he gets a clean mixing bowl and wears it as a hat, I look at Silent, and you know what I say? What's your son doing, right? Like, do you see what your son is doing? <laughs> Just straight up avoiding the responsibility or claim, right? Or claiming him. God's like, look what your people do, are doing. And Moses is like, I'm not trying to claim them. They're your people. Yeah? But Moses genuinely has no idea, and we'll see next week, he doesn't know the gravity of it until he sees it with his own eyes. So God tells him, and he even quotes the word of the Israelites in verse 7. God says that they have turned aside, I want you to note this, turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. Now this is significant, of course, because what God is saying is wildly different, right, than what Israel thinks they're doing. Israel and Aaron, as noted, think they can worship God and mummy. They think they can worship God via idols. But God is saying here clearly that he requires exclusive loyalty. 
You can't worship an idol and worship God. It's incompatible. I mean, that's what the, that's what the first three commandments address, for goodness sake. It doesn't matter if Israel cloaks their idolatry in piety or even if they use the means of Yahweh worship to worship these false gods. God will absolutely not tolerate rivals. Like we said earlier, the pull of idol worship is that idols can't talk and thus allow you to do whatever you want. But Yahweh, on the other hand, he requires that not only do you worship him according to his design, but that you live a certain way in light of his lordship and grace. In other words, God calls for obedience, an idol does not. God is a jealous God. If you're going to worship him, it must be on him t- his terms. If you're going to claim his name, he gets to define what that looks like. God is a jealous God calling for exclusive loyalty, which is like a husband calling his wife to be exclusively devoted to him and a wife calling her husband to be exclusively devoted to her. This is a reasonable request, yes? From the God of the universe? Like, why does every American know the name Benedict Arnold? Every American knows this this jabroni's name, right? Because this guy had given allegiance to American... America and the army. He is even a hero of the revolution. He got injured at Saratoga, but then the allure of the riches and the prestige that he felt he deserved, that he felt America wasn't honoring him with, was too much to resist. So what did he do? He turned coat and he joined the British army. While he was an American general, he betrayed his country. No serious person would say that it was okay and just fine that he served Britain while claiming to be a loyal American. Why? Because divided loyalty makes no sense. Why would God, the God of all things, accept split allegiances? Anyone says that this is possible is not saying it because they found it in Scripture. They're saying it because they want it to be true. And the allure of the gods that they, we can define and control, has taken over. We want to build a bear God that requires nothing and asks nothing and allows everything, but God leaves no option for that. He said, I am that I am, not I am, whatever you wish. So God says to Moses, I've seen this people and their stiff neck. Now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation out of you. And God is understandably angry, right? I mean, you understand... Israel didn't just like break the rules of some far-flung, petulant deity. They did, in fact, break God's rules, this is true, but they broke God's heart. He's their husband who desires to live with them, and they turn their backs so quickly. Has not the nearly last Two years of our journey in Exodus has not shown us how loving and caring and gracious God is. Haven't we seen that in like every text? All of his language towards them so far has been the language of care and desire to bring them close. And what do they do? They say, it's taking too long for him to give the instructions on how we could be with him. (laughs) Let's go make a God and use Yahweh worship to do it. This is a slap in the face. It's a rejection of God's care, like when the prodigal son told his dad, you're dead to me, give me your stuff, but I don't want you. 
we can see there's grace even here. Even in God's threat. When God says to Moses, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, he isn't saying that Moses is somehow physically preventing him from destroying this people, right? Like God could go and destroy them whether Moses likes it or not. Rather, this is a challenge to Moses. It's an invitation to intervention. It's like God is saying, Moses, this is what I will do unless you intervene. God is making it clear that Moses is the only thing standing between Israel and destruction. And God even throws a temptation out at Moses, doesn't he? Offering to make Moses the new Abraham. He's like, I'll just destroy them, start over with you as the new Abraham, and I'll make a great nation out of your offspring. But what does Moses say back to Yahweh. This is so fascinating what Moses says. Note that Moses does not excuse Israel's sins, does he? He's not like, you know, everybody sins, God. It's cool, right? He he doesn't justify their behavior. He's not like, you know what? I have been up here a while. He, He doesn't suggest that Israel does not deserve God's wrath. He doesn't ground his appeal in the Israelites at all. What does he do instead? He grounds his appeal to mercy in God's greater plan and God's glory and God's compassion and God's promises. Moses even refuses to put himself before God's reputation in the temptation to replace Abraham. Moses' appeal is grounded solely in God's commitment to make himself known as one who has a reputation to uphold, as one who has made promises that he has sworn to keep, and as one who has embarked upon a plan to make himself known to the nations. <coughs> Ross Blackburn says it like this. This is so good. He says, Moses grounds his plea for Israel in the interest of the Lord himself. This must not be missed, for it is crucial for understanding what is at stake in the Lord's response to Israel. Listen. Rather than defending the people before the Lord, Moses defends the Lord before the Lord. On these grounds, the Lord reverses his decision to destroy Israel. The point is that God's glory is central. Moses defends the Lord before the Lord because the most important thing is God's glory and praise and fame. Should not that be Israel's main concern as well? Should not their experience with his glorious and mighty God not cause them to be primarily about his glory too? Yes? And shouldn't that be our primary concern as well as people who bear the name of Christ? Moses says after this, God, you have brought the people out here. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent God brought them uh, out here to kill them in the wilderness? Like Moses pictures the headline on the front page of the Egyptian newspaper the next day saying, escaped slaves slaughtered by Yahweh. In other words, Moses doesn't want Egypt to tarnish God's reputation because God's rescue of Israel was in part to show forth his glory and to prove that he alone was God. And Moses says, remember your plan. Remember your covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your promises to give them that land. So the point we need to see is that Moses grounds his appeal utterly on who Yahweh is. And this works. And God relents in verse 14. Now, this relenting language, it does not mean that God literally changed his mind, okay? God, it doesn't mean that God agreed to do nothing either. 
Rather than thinking that God's mind can be changed, you must think of this language as Moses presenting God to us in ways that we can understand. Like he's presenting God in accommodation with our reality. I want you to think of when you see God relenting, think of in terms of prayer. God does rule sovereignly, right? Meticulous providence, his will will be done, but that does not mean prayer does nothing, does it? Prayer does matter, yes? And, and prayer does have an effect. Otherwise, why pray at all? God invites us to pray like Moses prays here. He invites us again in what he's doing, and prayer can indeed change things. Do you believe that? Oh. You guys believe prayer can change things? It means it doesn't, it doesn't mean it changes God. It means that, that the prayers of the saints are pleasing to God. And he hears like the request of a dear child to their loving father. And God invites Moses to interfere, and Moses does it, so God relents. John Mackey put it well when he said, it's not that God is being forced to adopt a new course of conduct because of some flawed decision of the past or because of some unforeseen circumstance having arisen. It is the Lord himself who opened up the way for the threat against the people to be removed by the appropriate action of the covenant mediator. So the overarching lesson for 714 is this. Forgiveness hinges on God's character, not on our worthiness or on the grounds that our sins are excusable. What are we owed? You know, we talk much in our society about our rights, don't we? All the live long day into 2021. My rights and my rights and my rights and our rights and our rights and our rights. But when you stand before a holy God, the only right we have is for his wrath to burn hot and for him to crush us. Is that not what we deserve? Is that not the only rights we have before a holy and just God? Let's be honest here, okay? These verses are unsettling. Is that fair to say? <laughs> this chapter is disturbing. But beyond that, you know, I was reading this text this week, and I was just reading it over and over and over again, and I was troubled, and I became more troubled the more I read it. And, and I was considering, like, the context, like, how God had been merciful to them, and it just turned so easily to idolatry. They're so fickle, aren't they? How do they get spit in God's face with their sin because they're impatient and short-sighted and forgetful of God's grace? How God had done so much for them. They didn't deserve any of it. And, and yet they turned their back on him. Like, it made me angry. <laughs> and the, the more I read it, the angrier I got. How could they do this? And you know why I got so mad? Because I saw myself in the text. Like, that was unsettling. I have a little legalist in my heart wanted to say, I can't believe these people. But then no sooner had that thought come up than another followed, what are you smug about? You're just like them. And I am. And you are. And we are. We have idols. We chase all kinds of things. We look to so many things to give us meaning and purpose and value. We make God's all the live long day. 
We make ourselves and our feelings arbiters of truth. We even turn things into the, in the church, in the church, into ends in themselves, made for us. We chase and we chase these idols and they leave us empty and we go back to them and they fail to satisfy, but they're so demanding, so we go back and we learn no lesson. What should happen is we should be crushed under God's sovereign boot. What else do we deserve? What else have we merited? We have no right to salvation, that's for certain. But it's in this space that a mediator steps in. But, but he does far more than Moses does here. It's like God is at the top of the mountain in the heavens, and we're down here just having a blast, <laughs> just having a good old time with our idolatry and justifying it and cloaking it in piety and self-righteousness, and it's killing us. And so God knows exactly what's going on, and he sends a mediator down in the person of Jesus. He doesn't come and chuck the tablets down. He instead intercedes by absorbing God's white, hot wrath on our behalf. You just think about that for a moment. What you deserve, what I deserve, in light of what Christ has done. Jesus comes down and he says, God, save them. Make them your people. Make them my people. Save them, not because they deserve to be saved, not because their sins aren't serious, but because I have taken upon me your righteous wrath that they might live. Is that all good news? One of my favorite illustrations, I'll close with this. Uh, I've shared it with you several times before, but it's too good, and it goes directly to what we're talking about. It's from uh, this fellow named Timothy Paul Jones. He's a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he was talking about his experience with adoption. And he and his wife, they adopted an eight-year-old girl who had previously been uh, adopted by another family, but they gave her up. That previous family, while they had her, <coughs> they would sometimes go to Disney World, but they would never take her with. They would only take their biological kids and they would leave her behind with a babysitter while they went. And so knowing this, uh, after Timothy, and Timothy Paul Jones' wife adopted her, they were determined, like, we're going to take her to Disney World And uh, when they had the chance. So they adopted her, they had a chance, they took her to Disney World. Well, for one reason or another, the girl began to act out leading up to going to Disney World. Well, after one particular incident, uh, a few days before they were set to leave, uh, he took her aside and she said, before he could say anything, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? And in response, he asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? And she nodded, brown eyes, wide and tear-rimmed. He asked, are you part of the family? And she nodded again. He said, then you're going with us. He said, sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family and we're not leaving you behind. Well, they finally went, and after the first day at Disney World, uh, they went to the hotel to sleep for the night, and he asked her how her first day at Disney World was. And this is what he wrote. <clears throat> he said, 
She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Why does God forgive you when you repent of your sin and idolatry and treason? Not because you did anything to merit it. Not because you're good, for you are not. It's because you're his. And why are you his? Because of the mediatory absorption of God's white-hot wrath in your place by King Jesus himself. He gives us grace. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us himself. And because of all of that, we don't need what the idols of this world are offering. We have everything we need in our triune God and more than we ever thought possible. And through his power, we could pray that he would reveal the idols of our lives and he will help us to be bold enough to topple them. That we may live in all things for the glory of so great and merciful a God and King. 